Hello everyone, I'd like to welcome you to the first episode in this Foreign Direct Investment series. The series will focus on updates, trends and developments in Foreign Direct Investment screening regimes across Europe. In 2021, we've seen foreign investment in Europe rebound strongly and we're expecting this trend to continue. My name is Fiona Garside and I'm a Senior Expertise Lawyer in the Antitrust Regulation and Foreign Investment Team at Ashurst in London. I'm delighted to be joined today by Neil Cunningham and Stephen Vaz, who are both partners in our team. Today we'll be talking about the National Security and Investment Act, which came into force in the UK on the 4th of January 2022, and drawing on Neil and Stephen's experience advising on foreign investment and merger control. Thank you both for joining me today. Hello. Good to be here. So the National Security and Investment Act, or the NSI Act, has introduced a new regime which has significantly strengthened the UK government's power to intervene in deals on the basis of national security. And this is part of a global trend that we're seeing towards enhanced scrutiny of investments. While some jurisdictions such as the United States and Australia have had foreign investment review processes for many years, other jurisdictions are just starting to introduce them. And we've seen a proliferation in the last two to three years, particularly across Europe. But one thing we should highlight just at the outset about the UK's new regime is that it's not a foreign investment regime. It's a national security regime, which means it applies to both UK and foreign investors. Now, Neil, how much has actually changed under the new regime? Well, quite a lot has changed, Fiona. What we had before was a regime which, under which national security issues could be assessed in the context of the merger control process. Uh, so the, the relevant Secretary of State could intervene in cases where they thought deals raised potential national security issues, but that actually only happened uh, in a handful of deals each year at most. Uh, and the re new regime is completely different, introduces in some cases mandatory notifications, uh, which have to be notified in clearance sort prior to closing of the transaction. And on top of that, you've got a voluntary notification regime and a call-in power for the government uh, which allows them to call in transactions for more detailed assessment, whether or not they've been notified. To give you an idea of the, the scale of it, I said that only a handful of deals each year were assessed on national security grounds under the previous regime. In its impact assessment published at the time of the bill being introduced to Parliament in November 20, the government indicated it expected up to 1,800 notifications per year. Uh, and that it would have detailed assessments of perhaps up to 100 or so of those. So there's going to be a vast increase uh, in the number of deals being reviewed, both at all and apparently in quite some detail. So it really is a transformative change for the UK. Stephen, is there anything you wanted to add just at the outset? I think it will be a real change in approach for uh, buyers and sellers, because previously, uh, in the UK, you only have the merger control regime, which was voluntary. So bringing into place a regime that requires a clearance for uh, the deal before it can close um, will affect the way in which deals are negotiated. And it has also involved the establishment of effectively a new regulator um, within the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy as well, known as the Investment Security Unit or the ISU. Are there any sectors which the IC is likely to be particularly interested in under the mandatory regime? So Fiona, the mandatory regime covers 17 sectors of the economy, which the government considers are more likely to raise national security concerns. And this goes beyond the obvious sectors of, of defence and the military. Broadly speaking, that covers various advanced technologies, infrastructure, energy and certain critical suppliers to the government. 
Now, importantly, not all activities within these sectors are caught by the mandatory regime. There are detailed uh, criteria for each sector, which are often complex, and there are aspects of the criteria that remain unclear in some respects. But helpfully, it, it is possible to speak to the ISU to seek clarification. And I think, Neil, you've done that a couple of times recently. Yeah, that's right, Stephen. Um, so, it, so in one case, uh, within the energy sector, which is one of the mandatory notification sectors, there's a category for upstream petroleum facilities. So that's things like uh, upstream petroleum pipelines and, and terminals and other infrastructure where you're acquiring a relevant entity which has an ownership stake, amongst other things, in one of these facilities where that facility has a throughput of more than 3 million tonnes, that's a notifiable uh, notifiable event. And the, the question arose, well, what in situations where these facilities, as they often are, are, are owned by multiple players in the oil and gas um, sector? How, how does that work? Is that is that ownership of one of one of these facilities? So we uh, went off to the um, the ISU and they, I might say, slightly unhelpfully gave the answer that any ownership stake is is sufficient. Um, so you have the prospect that if you're buying an entity which in turn owns a small stake in one of these upstream petroleum facilities, then that's a notifiable event. Does that mean there's no requirement for an entity to have significant activities in the sector to be captured? No, there isn't. Um, in most cases, there are no minimum turnover, asset value or market share thresholds. Put simply, if the target has activities within the mandatory sector, even if this is a really small part of its overall activities, then it will fall within the mandatory regime. And what that means practically is some quite detailed due diligence will be required. It, it may well need to go beyond the usual due diligence of material contracts and, and parts of the business, because if a company has, for example, even a single government contract, which requires the company's employees to have security check level vetting, then it will fall within the critical supplies to the government sector. It's interesting to hear you both talking a little bit about how you're already seeing this play out in practice. Could you tell us a little bit more about the sectors where you've been either making notifications or raising questions since the regime came into force? Perhaps, Neil, if we start with you. Yeah, yeah, sure. Sure. Thanks, Fiona. Um, so, you know, we, we do quite a lot of work in the energy space. So I've already talked a bit about upstream petroleum facilities. Another another type of uh, activity caught by the by the energy space is um, electricity generation. So the sort of basic threshold uh, is where you're requiring a notification is where the entity you're buying has a generating asset, so an individual generating asset with 100 megawatts of capacity. So that's, you know, relatively large facility, but not but not extremely large. But one point that's worth highlighting in that context is that there's another aspect to it, another threshold where the combination of the buyer and the target have one gigawatt of generation capacity. So one consequence of that is that any time that an entity which already has one gigawatt of generation capacity across its various assets buys some new generation capacity in Great Britain, it's going to be required to notify that regardless of the size of the capacity that is actually buying under the deal. Uh, and in terms of other sectors, quite a lot of queries in the transport sector, that's actually relatively narrow. So the mandatory sectors only cover larger airports as well as ports and harbours uh, and also en route air traffic control services. 
so that's a couple of the areas we've been I, I've been dealing with Stephen I'm, I'm, you've obviously had others as well yes I mean I think at the moment um, there's a lot of M&A activity covering defense contractors and subcontractors um, and they're clearly within scope of the mandatory regime as you would expect um, and I'm also seeing deal activity in the advanced technology sectors such as advanced robotics, artificial intelligence, and computer hardware. And again, um, depending on the activities of the target, th these, these types of businesses can quite often be within scope, even if the business itself is an early stage company, perhaps with very limited revenues or contracts at, at that stage. It sounds like you're both dealing with an interesting spread of sectors. If we stay with the mandatory regime just now, not all investments in entities active in these sectors will be captured. What types of investments are actually caught? Well, the mandatory regime, first of all, only applies to investments in qualifying entities, uh, which is a defined term, which meet the specified description. So those are the sorts of descriptions that we were talking about as to what's covered in the energy sector, transport sector, et cetera. One consequence of that is qualifying entities is the asset deals where you're buying assets rather than uh, a company or other form of entity, they do not need to be notified uh, and cleared before closing, even if they're doing the sorts of activity that would acquire a notification if it was an, a, a corporate or an entity acquisition. It's worth noting that qualifying entity doesn't need to be incorporated in the UK, but at least typically it will have to carry on business of a specified description in the UK, for example, through a subsidiary, uh, office, branch um, or just staff in the UK carrying out the specified activities but if you're doing one of these specified activities either e.g making advanced robotics in uh, in Germany for example and merely selling them into the UK then that shouldn't be caught by the mandatory regime now another another aspect of what is caught is you know what level of control do you need to to get over an asset or sorry over an entity to be to be caught by the mandatory regime and in most cases what you're talking about is whether you're acquiring a level of either share ownership or voting rights uh, above either 25 50 or 75 percent and so one consequence of that is that if you sort of gradually in, in, increase your stakes in a relevant entity you may have to make multiple notifications over time as you go over each of those gates and another important practical point about that 25% threshold is that it brings minority investors into scope of the mandatory regime, even if they're essentially taking a passive shareholding. A lot of deals in these key sectors involve consortium bids um, involving entities such as investment funds or pension funds. How will that notification impact them? Well, um, I mean, in short, it will be um, a notifiable event in, in, in a consortium bid where you're acquiring an entity, a relevant entity, which falls within one of these specified descriptions, which require mandatory notification. It'll be the acquisition vehicle, which in principle needs to make the notification, obviously assuming it's acquiring more than 25% typically over the relevant entity. Often, of course, these consortium bids are for 100% of the relevant entity. But as you would expect, probably each of the investors in that consortium are relevant to the assessment process and will have to provide information uh, as part of the notification, certainly if they hold at least 5% uh, of the relevant uh, acquisition vehicle. And another point on minority stakes that's, that's worth highlighting is that it's not just those 25%, 50% and 75% thresholds which can trigger a notification. There's another category of control, which is where uh, an entity acquires 
voting rights, which enable it to secure or prevent the passage of any class of resolution. Now, that's, that sounds quite broad, but actually, on the basis of the legislation and, and the government guidance, it's, it seems relatively clear that the mandatory regime only um, applies if veto rights, for example, of the sort that you see in consortium agreements or shareholder agreements, extend to most or all decisions, not only certain specific things, which is, of course, what you normally see in shareholder agreements. But that's one to just be aware of. So I guess as the government um, said in its impact assessment, it's going to be a significant number of deals that will be caught by the mandatory regime. Stephen, is there any way you can close those deals without waiting for clearance? Unfortunately, there isn't, because any deal that's subject to the mandatory regime that's closed before clearance will be void. And obviously, that will concern buyers and sellers, as well as any third parties that are providing finance for the deal. Um, the buyer also faces additional risks if it closes a, a mandatory deal without clearance. Uh, these include fines of up to £10 million or 5% of the buyer's global turnover, if that's higher, and also potential criminal liability, with individuals being able to be imprisoned for up to five years. But I think helpfully um, for listeners that are involved in auction processes, uh, it is usually the target's activity that triggers a mandatory filing requirement. And that does mean that all bidders will be in substantially the same position in terms of whether or not they have to obtain a clearance. Thanks, Stephen. So far, we've been talking about the mandatory regime, but Neil, you mentioned at the beginning that deals in any sector can actually be called in for review, regardless of whether or not they've been notified. What conditions need to be met before the government could call a transaction outside the mandatory regime in for review? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. The, um, the, the call-in regime is, is very broad in scope. An acquisition of control uh, as defined over any qualifying entity, which can just basically be an entity with some sort of UK nexus is, is sufficient. And in, and in this context, trigger events are defined more broadly than just the types of control we were talking about earlier in the context of the mandatory regime. So for example, the 25, 50 and 75% thresholds. So there's an extra category of control uh, for the voluntary and call-in regimes, which is the acquisition of material influence over uh, an entity. Now, that's a lower threshold um, than the other types of control. It's taken, the concept is taken from UK merger control. It's a relatively nebulous concept. And what the competition authority, which applies that in the uh, merger control context, says in its guidance is that's unlikely to be relevant for shareholdings of less than 15%, but it doesn't rule that out. And it will take into account factors such as the right to appoint directors, particular industry expertise, and the relative shareholdings of the other directors in deciding whether uh, there is an acquisition which allows the entity to materially influence the commercial policy of the entity. So it's important that that is thought about as well in the context of the voluntary or call-in regime, though, rather than the mandatory regime. And the call-in power also applies to asset deals, which are obviously entirely outside the mandatory regime. I know the government's indicated that they're less likely to intervene in an asset deal, but in what circumstances might a deal be called in? Well, firstly, you have to meet the requirements for a qualifying asset, an acquisition of a qualifying asset, but that's defined pretty broadly. It includes land, property, ideas or information with economic value. So you might be talking about things like trade secrets, algorithms, software, for example. And again, an acquisition of control of a qualifying asset is defined pretty broadly. It's simply the acquisition of a right or interest in relation to the asset that enables the person to use the asset or direct 
uh, or control its use to a greater extent than before. So you're going to need to assess, you know, that's pretty low threshold. So you're going to need to assess whether that acquisition of a relevant asset may raise national security issues uh, and therefore be of interest to the government. It's a very broad call in power indeed then. Um, another point that we should highlight is that the government can actually call transactions in for up to five years after the deal closes. Yeah, that's right, um, which is obviously quite a long period. And so that raises the prospect that they could call in a deal four and a half years later and at that stage impose um, impose remedies on the buyer. Now, of course, that won't happen uh, very often, if at all, but that, 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 that prospect is there. It's worth noting that the that retrospective call-in period can be reduced to six months by making sure... Uh, the, the, the Secretary of State or the ISU effectively uh, is, is aware of the deal. And of course, if you're worried about the risk of a call-in, uh, you can mitigate that risk uh, or indeed remove that risk by making a voluntary application for clearance. Alternatively, you can seek some form of informal guidance for the ISU to get hope to get try to get some form of comfort that the transaction isn't going to be of interest to the ISU from a national security perspective. Thanks, Neil. Given this very broad call in power, Stephen, is there any way of knowing or assessing how likely it is that your deal will be called in? I think, Fiona, that's going to be the critical question for anyone who's buying assets or businesses in the UK that are not subject to the mandatory regime. Um, Now, the government's published a statement which sets out the way in which they expect to exercise uh, their call in powers. And essentially, um, a deal is at risk of call in if there's a reasonable risk that it may give rise to a national security concern. Now, the government has not defined exactly how it's going to assess national security, because clearly that in itself is a very sensitive question. And therefore, the government will have a very flexible approach. But its overall framework will be to consider three factors. The first of these is target risk. So that really is looking at what does the target do? And is the target's activity such that it could give uh, rise to a risk to national security? I think target risk is going to be greater where the target is involved in one of these 17 specified key sectors or in closely related sectors of the economy. The second factor is control risk, and that is just simply the amount of control um, that is being acquired over the target. Clearly, more control that's being acquired, the higher the level of risk. But the most important of the three factors is really acquirer risk, and that's looking at who is buying the asset and whether that purchaser has any characteristics that suggest a risk to national security, taking into account its ultimate owners, its management, and perhaps any links it has to entities that are seen as being hostile to the UK. I think acquirer risk is likely to be of great interest to listeners, so perhaps we can explore that in a little bit more detail. There's a lot of foreign investment into the UK, particularly by state-owned enterprises and pension funds overseas, and they'll want to understand exactly how the regime will apply to them. The Secretary of State has said that he doesn't expect these entities, state-owned enterprises or other entities affiliated with foreign states to be inherently more likely to pose a risk to national security, but is there any other comfort that we can offer to these sorts of investors? Well, I think the the first form of comfort is really what the government's been saying throughout the introduction of this legislation. Now, this is not a foreign investment act. It is very much aimed only at national security. And the government very much welcomes foreign investment into the UK economy. 
um, and wants that to continue. So the act is not about economic protectionism. Um, so taking that into account, um, the statement I referred to earlier um, says that where a purchaser has a history of passive or long-term investments, that in itself may indicate a very low level of acquirer risk. And that should be good news for most long-term investors. I think, as you say, entities that are affiliated with foreign states are not inherently considered to be more likely to give rise to a national security concern. But there is a requirement on the form to provide information on any links to state ownership or any politically exposed persons that are part of the management of the purchaser. And it's likely the government will have more questions where the ultimate purchaser is a state-owned enterprise, particularly if uh, there are links to a state that is considered to be hostile to the UK. Once you've taken into account those three factors and you think there is a risk that your deal might be called in for that detailed national security assessment, is there any way of trying to get ahead of this? Well, there are a number of options, uh, which I think Neil uh, mentioned briefly earlier. You can speak to the ISU informally before the deal has closed to seek their guidance as to whether they, they are likely to have concerns and therefore whether they are likely to call in the transaction. That form of informal engagement could include a briefing paper that explains the reasons why the parties are not intending to notify the transaction. However, if, if there are greater national security concerns or if the buyer wants um, complete comfort that the deal will not be called in after it's closed, then there is an option to make a voluntary notification and obtain a formal decision from the ISU. The one benefit of a voluntary notification um, as compared to a mandatory notification is that the parties are able to close the deal while the government's investigating. But of course, that puts the buyer at risk if remedies are imposed. So there'll be a need to consider whether that is appropriate uh, in, in, in each particular case. And it's worth noting that you can get that sort of informal guidance in the context of the mandatory regime as well as the, the voluntary regime. So, for example, in an auction context, there may be various bidders who are competing to, to acquire a relevant entity. And both the seller and uh, the various potential buyers may have an interest in getting comfort from the ISU that they're unlikely to raise any issues. Uh, and we've certainly seen that on various auction processes in, in the lead up to the the new regime coming into play. So there are various options to consider um, about getting comfort or guidance from the ISU beyond simply making a notification. Thanks, Neil. And speaking of engagement with the ISU, our team's already been working on several deals and engaging directly with the ISU. What have we learned about the assessment process so far? Well, in terms of the process itself, there's uh, an initial review period of 30 working days from the time uh, when a notification is accepted. So broadly speaking, six weeks, the government has indicated that uh, some deals will be cleared more, more quickly than that, and we'll, we'll come back to that. And the vast majority of cases are expected to be dealt with um, in this initial 30 working day period. In those cases where a more detailed assessment is called for, the deal is called in, is the formal term that they use, uh, whether or not there's been a notification. And when that happens, then there's initially a further period of 30 working days. And that 
is then extendable by the government if they think they need more time uh, for a further 45 working days. So you've got that initial six week period, then another six weeks, then potentially another nine weeks plus holidays. So that's, you know, 21 working weeks, which is potentially quite a long time. But obviously, that only happens uh, in a small number of deals, relatively small number of deals, which the ISU is, is considering. It's worth noting that the time periods can be extended even further through voluntary extensions or any time the ISU asks some questions when you get into one or more of these detailed assessment periods that actually stops the clock uh, and it doesn't restart until the questions have been answered effectively. So you've got potentially long processes. However, the vast majority of deals should be being dealt with pretty quickly. In terms of how you make a filing, uh, it's made through an online portal. Uh, and you're going to need to fill in various boxes uh, in that portal, providing information on things like the shareholders or affiliates of the acquirer, uh, as you would expect, the activities of the target, you know, how it falls within the mandatory regime, if relevant. Uh, one question is about whether it's been a supplier to the UK government in key areas in the last five years. And obviously, you have to tell them about the control thresholds being met. I mean, in terms of practically how it's working, it seems to be working fairly well. Uh, as you said, it's only been in place for a few weeks. But one good point is that notifications seem to be accepting, being accepted um, pretty quickly uh, in a matter of days and appropriate cases are actually being cleared um, very quickly as well. And uh, Stephen, I think you've got one particular example to highlight. Yes, that's right. Um, we were involved in a deal which was in one of the mandatory sectors and we knew it was going to close um, just a few days after the uh, Act came into force on the 4th of January. So by engaging with the ISU uh, towards the end of last year and providing information, we were able to get into a position where the filing could be made on a Friday. Um, it was accepted the following Tuesday as being complete. And then within two days, um, the ISU cleared the transaction. Now, the circumstances of that case are are not typical, but it does show that the um, ISU is able to clear deals quickly where it's already considered that there are no uh, material national security issues. That's really great to hear the process is working smoothly so far and that we've already got clearances coming through. When the government does reach a decision, Stephen, is there any publication of the information that parties have provided or the, that final decision? So that's a question we're getting quite a lot from clients, actually, because the nature of these activities are often you know, highly sensitive. And in some cases, the work that the target does, does itself with the government uh, may be subject to um, confidentiality and security clearance obligations. But the process itself is, is a highly confidential process. Um, the information provided as part of the notification uh, will not be made public. It will simply be used by the government to reach its assessment. And where there are no issues, what we're seeing is there's a standard one-page um, clearance letter that's being granted at the end of the process. Decisions that are reached, even in a more in-depth investigation, will not be published. Uh, and really, the only uh, time that third parties will be aware of uh, a process is where remedies are imposed. In those cases, the Secretary of State is required to publish the final order, or at least notice that it, a final order has been um, reached, a summary of the order and a summary of the reasons for it. But some um, confidential and restricted information will not be provided uh, even in those circumstances. And speaking of remedies, 
Um, we said that we don't expect the government to impose remedies very often. How often do we anticipate remedies and what sort of remedies do we think might be imposed? So in the impact assessment, the government stated that it only expects to impose remedies in a handful of cases, perhaps 10 a year. But the government does have a wide power to impose a range of remedies. And if we look at um, the way in which defence mergers uh, were looked at under the previous regime and also the approach in other jurisdictions, we think remedies are likely to include one of the following three elements. The first is some form of condition on access to information or to sensitive facilities, uh, perhaps requiring that that access is only granted to individuals with appropriate UK security clearances. The second is conditions requiring certain facilities or staff uh, to be maintained within the UK if there is a concern that essential services are likely to be offshored in some way. And then the third is where um, there are serious national security concerns. Um, the government does have the ability to prohibit the transaction from closing or if the transaction is already closed, it can require that transaction to be unwound. But I would emphasise that those sorts of prohibitions are expected to be extremely rare. Neil, Stephen, thank you both for that interesting overview of the new regime and your experiences advising on it so far. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. The regime will clearly have an impact on a large number of transactions, even if the number of detailed assessments is relatively small. We'll be watching with interest over the next few months to see how the regime develops and in particular the types of deals which the government scrutinises in more detail. If you're interested in reading more about the National Security Investment Act, then we have a quick guide available in the legal update section on our website and in the show notes to this episode, as well as several other briefings on the Act and its background. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Ashurst Legal Outlook, why not check out our other two podcast series as well? Ashurst Business Agenda tackles the big strategic issues that business leaders face. And ESG Matters at Ashurst reveals how business leaders are rising to mounting environmental, social and governance challenges. You can listen and subscribe to Business Agenda and ESG Matters wherever you get your podcasts.